You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Well, New City, good morning. I hope this finds you well. I'm here recording in our space with some of our incredible serve team on a Sunday night. I know you'll be watching this, hopefully with your family on Sunday morning in pajamas on your couch, huddled up with your family or your roommates, wherever you are, uh, the Lord welcomes us all. We are, we are scattered, but we are scattered together this morning. And so praying that the holiday is um, really a tremendous season of blessing to your family. And uh, we can't wait to see your faces again in person. But um, we are this week actually finishing out our time in the Sermon on the Mount, which is bittersweet because it's been a shaping passage for the culture and direction of our church. Um, Remember back to what Jesus is really doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is giving us an alternative vision for being a human being. What does it look like to be his follower, his disciple in this world? He's giving us a vision of a counter kingdom with a different kind of king, a, a kingdom that is marked by upside down kind of values that it's not intuitive, that following Jesus, embodying the traits of his kingdom, um, it's not a personality type. It's a supernatural fruit that he blooms in our lives. And so, man, we've said from the beginning, we want to be a kind of church that gives Champaign-Urbana a glimpse of that coming kingdom, that gives our city a taste of the beauty and the glory and the, the power of Jesus. And so, man, as we finish here, really the Sermon on the Mount has one more very significant question for us here in the last chapter, and here it is. What are you building your life on? It's a simple question, but it's profound in its implications. Right here in verse 24, he gives uh, a little closing to the sermon where he says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See, Jesus is really telling us there there are two ways that we can respond to his teaching right here. In one sense, we can embrace it. We can bow our knee to the king of the kingdom, Jesus, and drill down into the bedrock of his teaching that is unchanging and is eternally good. Or we can build our lives on a variety of other things that ultimately don't hold up and aren't satisfying. Those are the two paths that Jesus sets before us. Did you notice the floods came to both? 
the wind came to both people. So the question is not, will your life be hard? The question is, will your life be built on the bedrock of Jesus's kingdom or not when it does get hard? What are you building your life on right here in chapter 7? What we're going to see as we walk through in just a few short minutes are some markers of the life that's built on the rock. Markers of a life that's built on the rock. As simple as that. Here's the first one. A life built on the rock rejects hypocrisy. Look back at verse 1 in chapter 7. It says, judge not that you be not judged. That's probably the most popular Bible verse now. Used to be John 3.16, now it's, hey, don't judge me, man. For with judgment, verse 2, you pronounce, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? See, right here, that Bible verse that says, Judge not that you be not judged. It can kind of be used as a junk drawer to really try to push us away from the table of making any kind of judgments. Like, hey, Jesus said not to be judged, so none of us should make judgments about anything. But you know from the following verses that that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is a particular kind of judgment that is a wicked judgment. And that is a hypocritical judgment. It's a type of judgment that he's condemning right here. A hypocritical judgment overlooks the same or worse sins in us to point out even less serious things in others. This is why Jesus gives us this this sort of intentionally ridiculous illustration right here. Can you imagine if I walked up to you after one of our Sunday gatherings and I, I, I got a couple of feet away from you and I was like, hey, I noticed you had a little bit of sawdust in the corner of your eye. And while I was saying that to you, I literally had a log sticking out of my face. It's ridiculous. It's intentionally ridiculous. I think Jesus' hearers would have chuckled at this. Why? Because it's insane. Who in the world, with a log in their own eye, would dare mention anything about a piece of sawdust in somebody else's? That is the very essence of a hypocritical judgment. What fuels this kind of judgment? Here's what it is. It's pride. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. That's what a house built on the sand looks like. But a house built on the rock rejects that kind of judgment. It makes a new kind of judgment, a helpful kind of judgment. Friend, hear me. There is a right and good time to make a judgment call. In our church, we should be a people that make good and right judgments. See, a house built on the rock, the kind of judgments that they make of others in our church family will be marked by a deep sense of patience and gentleness. There will be, it it, it may ruffle your feathers when you have somebody who really calls you to account on living out of step with Jesus's kingdom. Like that's not always going to feel great in the moment, but guess what? 
there is going to be no mistake that genuine love for you and love for God is involved in this situation when we are making right kind of judgments. You know who's really good at making that kind of a judgment? Someone who is deeply serious about their own repentance. Somebody who who looks at the log in their own eye with honesty and is just and just goes, I am baffled that me, even me, Jesus and his kindness would rescue and redeem. There's a humility that comes with that. The posture becomes, hey, I'm over here at the foot of the cross receiving grace, mercy, and kindness from Jesus, and there's room here with me. There's room. The posture is not, hey, you need to go over there to the cross and get right. No, no, no. The right kind of judgment, a person who rejects hypocrisy, realizes that they are bowing at the foot of the same cross that the person they're making a judgment call is. It's a different kind of way. And can I just tell you, that kind of culture in our church will change people's lives Anyone can grow in a church like that. A church that loves you enough to be honest with you, but to be so caught up in the culture of the gospel that they are honoring as they do it. That's a special thing to experience. There's another kind of hypocrisy here in this early text that Jesus is telling us to reject. Look at verse 6. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The principle here is that we are not meant to take things that are precious, the ultimate jewel, the ultimate treasure of our church, and give it to people who are going to destroy it, who are going to mistreat it. See, there's a strange kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is calling into focus here because we have to identify what is the true jewel of our church. It is the message of the gospel. That is the treasure that we hold. That is the pearl. That is the important thing. And so what Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, if you are putting the gospel, the treasure of the church, before someone who is constantly and repeatedly maligning it, rejecting it, mocking it, um, throwing it under the bus, essentially. Jesus is saying, it is hypocrisy to keep handing a person a treasure who you know is going to throw the treasure in the mud. He said that's a form of hypocrisy that we have to reject. The work has to change in that moment. The work is no longer to hand them the treasure, but rather to hand them to God. And that leads into the next, the next point here. A life built on the rock depends on God. Look at the very next verse after Jesus says that, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. First, the first thing that God tells us to do right here in being dependent on him is to seek him seriously. 
Ask, seek, knock. It's emphatic. It's passionate. It's serious. This is the mark of a dependent life that's built on the rock. So that person who keeps throwing the jewel of the gospel into the dirt, that person who's a long shot in coming to Christ, you know what we do now instead of handing it to them? We ask, seek, and knock. We plead with God that holy desire in your heart to use your gifts to bring glory to God and to make a difference. Ask, seek, and knock the longing for a spouse that you experience, ask, seek, knock. The hope of freedom from a present sin struggle, ask, seek, and knock. Here's the question for us, New City. Will we be an asking kind of people? In light of the Sermon on the Mount's teaching, what if we became a church family that displayed all these diverse and different expressions of God's glory and goodness because each of us were so committed to asking him to do it in us, to use us for his purposes. What if together as a whole church, we saw a gravitational pull on our hurting city in the aftermath of COVID-19 toward the risen Christ Because there was such a tangible mercy among us. New city, ask, seek, knock. Can we ask together? You should see here in this section, there's an important admission here. A theological reality that Jesus shows us. Look there in verse 11. It says, if you then, who are evil know how to give, a good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the second part of dependence. Jesus did not, he didn't stumble over his words here. He chose his words very intentionally. Why? Because, because of sin, The image of God is marred in us, but hear me, it is not lost. It is not lost. Meaning we don't perfectly reflect God's character the way we were meant to. And in that, Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. He's saying this means on our own, we, you, I are evil. That our nature before God has been so broken It's not our humanity that's a problem. It is our broken and fallen and sinful humanity that's a problem. And a life of dependence fully admits this and confesses that their only hope of pleasing God is that the ultimate good one would get involved. Friends, this is exactly what Jesus has done for those of us who are trusting in him. He has, turned be- he, he has turned beauty and goodness from a train wreck of evil. That's what he does. Friend, are you admitting where God is actually rescuing you from? Anything less than a full acknowledgement that you, without the intervention of Christ, are evil and in desperate need 
That is no different than any self-help program. But hear me, real Christianity, it's honest. It's honest. And that honesty, when you come to the edge of yourself and you admit where you are, it is met with the grace and power of Jesus. And there's a last piece here. Look at verse 12. It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What is Jesus saying right here? From this place of complete dependence, of complete admission, we begin to demonstrate God's heart toward others. We finally begin to live a life that's pleasing to God. This is the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, my friends. Two more real brief things right here. Number three, a life built on the rock takes the heart very seriously. Verse 14 says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Did you notice the soberness here? Narrow and hard is the way. What if Christianity costs you everything? If you can't say, I'm in, knowing that it might, it might cost you everything. It is not Christ, but it is something else that is driving you. But I'm telling you, if you've seen Jesus, if you've realized his complete wonderfulness, and you know, you know that without him, you would be utterly and completely hopeless here in life and later in eternity. Friend, that is the heart of a Christian. If your experience with Jesus is anything less than complete surrender from your heart right now, can I plead with you, turn from yourself. Turn from yourself. Turn from the gods that can never truly satisfy and that can never truly even redeem you. Verse 17 says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Where does fruit come from? It ultimately comes from the roots, it comes from the heart. What a person is drawing from in their heart of hearts, make no mistake, will make an appearance in your life. You can't hide it. If the general direction of your life is one of self-preservation or of an unwillingness to obey Jesus, could it be that this fruit is growing from a heart that has not yet been captured by his grace? Be willing to ask that this morning. Is that what's going on? Or maybe you're simply stumbling backward. You're straining and trying, but you're falling and failing. Friend, this morning, will you let the grace of the gospel recapture your heart? If the wonder of Jesus isn't blowing you away and you're being led more by your doubts, by your fears, by your anxieties, 
Today is a great day to confess that to your Lord. Ask him. You need to fall in love again. You remember what it was like when you first fell in love if you're married? You need to recapture that same kind of wonder with your father. And then verse 21 through 23, we see some of the most terrifying words in the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, are there more terrifying words? Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. I mean, my gosh, this should, this should cause the most seasoned Christian real pause. I mean, shouldn't it? Did you notice... They've done all these incredible things. They have this list. Did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? I mean, all that stuff's incredible, right? And they even did it in his name, is what the text tells us. But they used those works to justify themselves. Here's the question for us, New City. What will, you, you, what will you offer to God as grounds for eternity? As grounds for entrance into his kingdom? If it is anything other than the finished work of Jesus in my place, hear me, you are not yet a Christian. I never knew you, is what Jesus says to that. It's like, man, didn't I, didn't I go to church? Didn't I sacrifice my Sunday mornings and wake up? Didn't I give money to the poor? Didn't I, didn't I pack boxes for children in faraway countries? And he'll say, man, I didn't, I didn't know you. I mean, yeah, you did some stuff. You did some great stuff even. Even stuff in my name. But you wanted to do stuff to feel important and to feel justified. I wanted to know you. You see that that's the heart of your Lord and this whole thing is to know his people. One person uses their works to justify themselves. The other person does right and good things in this world as a response to free grace. This is the invitation of the gospel, to know and be known by God, to be his completely and fully without any fear of him changing his mind. What will you offer? New City, we want to be, we, we talk about being a gospel-centered church a lot. We don't want you to be able to miss Jesus here. We don't want you to be able to get to the end of your life and have lived connected to the church all the way to hell. We want you to see your need for him and to embrace his grace as your own.
That's the deepest desire. And then the very last thing here, I'm almost done, I promise. A life built on the rock acknowledges the authority of Jesus. Look in verse 28 and 29, it says, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Don't you feel a sense of that getting to the end of the Sermon on the Mount going, Who is this guy? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the final question of the Sermon on the Mount. Will you follow him? Whatever the cost, whatever the fear, will you follow him? The upside down kingdom has a king. And he's calling us to himself this morning. The, the funny thing is that the good news of the Sermon on the Mount isn't even the kingdom vision that Jesus sets out for life. The good news of the Sermon on the Mount is the king of the kingdom. He is the prize. He is the treasure. And New City Church, he is worth following. He is predictable when everything else is unstable. He is solid when everything else is sinking. He is predictably surprising, shockingly wonderful. His way will be good. His way will be hard. And hear me, his way will be everything that you were made for. Will you follow him? Will you build your life on the rock? That is our invitation from Jesus this morning. I love you.